Well, I, I appreciate you doing this. I always read your stuff um, in the news, and, and you do incredible work. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me about this story in particular. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, it's a real trip down memory lane, so um, good. You know, forgive me if I uh, forget a little bit here and there or if I need my memory jogged. Don't worry too much about that. I guess, you know, the first thing that I wanted to ask you is in regards to this case, what, when did you first hear about it? What did you hear? And, and, you know, was there a conscious decision on your part to cover it? Or was it just, you know, you cover the Southern District and sort of anything that comes out of there, you know, you kind of have to look at and, and make that decision. So when did you first come across it? Well, I first came across it before I started actually covering the Southern District. And I think I was still on the rewrite desk the Daily News, which is sort of a, um, I guess, without going into too much detail, a general assignment type of position. And I became aware that there was a huge scandal bubbling in the NYPD and at one police plaza. And because uh, if, I, if, I, if memory serves, it emerged that they were looking at, you know, these insiders, these one police plaza insiders before their arrest. Sure. And, you yeah. know, and I, 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 I that, that's just the way I remember it. But so, you know, and pretty soon, it, you know, then it very quickly emerges that these guys are de Blasio donors. And, you know, I don't know exactly when the full scope of the thing emerged. I, you know, I think that there were FBI raids going on on high-level cops prior to the indictment. And so, you know, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong about this. But so, no, no, um, you're right. Yeah, yeah. That there was sort of this, you know, various aspects of it going on. I think before the indictment that are a little bit hazy as to who exactly they were looking at or mm -hmm. why they were looking at them, but which also kind of makes the story interesting too, because, you know, you sort of wonder, did this start because they were looking at the Blasio or did they start and just stumble across these guys, which is what I think actually happened. Yeah. I mean, from the beginning, there was a perception that this went all the way to the top or could go all the way to the top. That so there was huge interest. And then, you know, it, it, and it, it was really, it was pretty sleazy from early on, you know, this whole like uh, cops on call kind of uh, idea. And, um, you know, it had all the ingredients of a, of a big tabloid story even before, you know, we learned about the flight to Vegas or anything like that. You know, I remember very early on, there was, you know, details leaking out about um, NYPD helicopters doing flyovers um, just to, you know, sort of at the behest of these insiders. 
you know, and things like that. Mm-hmm. It was just really dramatic. And uh, I should say it wasn't clear necessarily what the crime was at that point, you know. Like, I don't think that um, me as a reporter and my colleagues as a reporter were crystal clear on what the crime would be if it was a helicopter flyover. Um, but we knew the FBI was looking at it. That's how I recall it. Yeah, um, and I guess that brings up a good point. Had you in your previous writing covered any sort of what they refer to as honest service cases? I would say yes, because I'd done public corruption stuff. I think okay. that maybe Sheldon I think that Sheldon Silver maybe was accused of honest it services was. fraud. He was, yeah. That was. was an honest services case. Yes, it was. And and you know, in my understanding of it's just it's such a broad it's such a you can bring it in so many different contexts. You know, I think that the honest services fraud in the Sheldon Silver case is pretty obvious. The deception was very clear in that case. You know, and in the, in Jimmy Grant's case, they were they they argued that he had a, a duty to you know <laughs> behave in a more professional manner than he was. You know, I guess it's sort of. Um, yeah, they think a very I, I sort of loose argument, loose argument, and and the idea of you know you mentioned the cops on call and what constitutes bribery, um, which I, I I have a question sort of in a few minutes about that. Mm-hmm. The one part of this story that I I've always wondered about, and I, I wanted your assessment of it, is when you look at the overall scope of them looking at all of these NYPD guys. There was a moment where they were really, really looking at Phil Banks. Yeah. And, 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 you know, in all of this, what, what I find interesting is that they started to really, really look at him. And, I, and I've talked to Banks off the record a mm-hmm. number of times. Funny enough, he, he would call me when the trial was going on. And I don't know mm-hmm. if he was trying to, like, you know, pick me for information or he had a bone to pick with Bratton and everything that had happened. But I always found it sort of odd in that, you know, how it all shook out um, that he kind of like skated by in all of this. Um, What what was your interpretation? Did you hear rumors that they were looking at banks and then decided not to indict him? I always heard they were, that Banks was under investigation. It became very clear that he was under investigation by the time Seabrook and Jimmy Grant went both went to trial because Banks was all over both of the cases. Yeah. Um, as to and there are documents that were made public showing that Banks was investigated really closely. Yeah. I mean, they had, you know, they were investigating him him for some sort of, you know, uh, financial crimes related to some property he owns, if I remember right. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know why he was never charged, but I can tell you that, you know, I did, um, I did take some time today to sort of look over my my stories and stuff and sort of just try to remember some of this. It's so big, it's impossible to remember everything. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But 
but you know, one of the things is, um, I have a few thoughts on Banks. One is Banks was so high up that he had the luxury of working through other people. He issued orders through other people who then carried out his, whatever he wanted. And Harrington was that guy for Banks, right? Yes. I mean, Harrington was Banks' right-hand man. So, so the feds charged Harrington and Jimmy Grant. And what the trial showed is that Jimmy Grant was on a lot of wiretaps. I mean, they had him saying a lot of stuff. And Harrington, I'm not quite as sure of the extent of the wiretaps. I remember that they did play some with him in the trial, if I remember right. But, you know, yeah. they didn't. But Harrington had pleaded out by the time they went to trial. So, um, you know, we don't really know the extent, but I think it's a fair assumption to think that they had a lot on Harrington as well. His security company came up a lot, Yeah. Um, which was blue something, blue shield maybe. Blue Guardian, excuse me, Blue Guardian. So I think I can say that one of the things that I think it's reasonable to consider is that maybe they didn't have the goods on banks in the same yeah. way that they thought they had the goods on Jimmy Grant and uh, Harrington. You know, and, and as I said, banks was able to work through Harrington to a large extent. So perhaps he benefited from that. Perhaps he benefited from the uh, privileges he had as the highest ranking uniformed officer in the the police department. Um, You know, but I I can't say that for certain. I don't know exactly what the prosecutor's thinking is. But, you know, this was a trial that, in in a case that was told through a lot of wiretaps. You know, they had Jimmy saying a lot of stuff, and they had Jeremy saying a lot of stuff. And then they had Jonah, like, providing a narrative to the whole thing. Yeah, that uh, that was my next question was, what was your over and overall analysis, you know, because he was such a, a the sort of, you know, as, as Martin Bell liked to call him, you know, his star witness in a sense. What was your yeah. just overall takeaway of Jonah you know, Ponzi scheme guy, rips off a, a lot of people. How, how did you, what what'd you, what'd you feel about him just on an overall level? Believable, not believable? How does he make his way sort of into this world? Um, it, it all kind of, in some of the stuff he did, to, it, it came off to me as silly. Um, but what was your takeaway? Well, there, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, Jonah Regnitz is an, an, an incredible New York City character. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just like, I mean, just really a remarkable guy. Um, I think the first thing you got to say about him is, you know, I realize you asked me what my opinion of him is, but the important thing is that the juries believed him. Even the jury that acquitted Jimmy Grant, those jurors told us, the reporters, the press, that they believed Jonah, they found him credible, and they convicted Jeremy Reichberg, largely on Jonah's testimony. You can't convict, you can't find Jeremy Reichberg guilty without believing Jonah. I don't see how you could do that. So the juries believed him. 
Um, as far as as far as like what I think, what my impression of him was, I I was always amazed at the motive, Jonah's motive for all this. It never went beyond just wanting to make himself look like a big shot. And it never yeah. went beyond some sort of vague concept that he would be able to monetize this, these relationships at some point down the road. Because he never monetized, he never really even attempted to monetize them. He was spending money, um, huge amounts of money. You know, it speaks to his privilege and his sense of entitlement at that time, you know? And, and you have to acknowledge that he said he was a changed man. He, he says he, you know, he said recently he's a changed man. Um, you know, he is mixed up and stuff in L.A., but... Yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, an interesting <laughs> epilogue to this whole thing. But the yeah. whole story on that doesn't, hasn't really been told. He was a wildly corrupt person, like, at that time. And he was really, you know, leaning into it. He was really going for it. And I think that one of the really interesting things that his whole story reveals is how quickly he was able to insert himself into the highest levels of one police plaza and city hall at once, at the same time. You know, he kind of came out of nowhere. And he just started throwing money around. And it seems like within months, he's rubbing elbows with de Blasio. He's hanging out with the chief of department. You know, it's really remarkable. Um, and it really shows uh, what you can accomplish with seemingly limitless amounts of money. Uh, it's really crazy. Um, it definitely doesn't say anything good about the way City Hall is run, how politics in general in the city, or just, you know, really across the country um, yeah. is done. And and really, like, I think one of the interesting stories is it showed how political the police department is at the highest levels and how... Um, those people at the highest levels are looking to form, um, to, 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 you know, foster relationships and, and, and find allies, powerful allies. You know, Jonah, as someone who had the ear of the mayor, obviously, um, that was an important relationship for Phil Banks to have and for Harrington to have. Mm -hmm. And I think the evidence showed for Jimmy Grant to have to a certain extent, too. Because Jimmy was climbing the ladder and, uh, you know, Jonah and Jeremy wanted to have a relationship with him as they climb, as he climbed the ranks of the department. And Jonah and Jeremy, as friends with Banks, like since they were friends with Banks, Jimmy had a reason to be friends with them too, right? Um, so it's a very political kind of like uh, Machiavellian kind of world fueled by cash that was um, revealed through this whole thing. 
Do you think in the in the reporting of this as it relates to de Blasio and his administration that anything was missed in that story? Or was it just kind of Jonah in that world is a dime a dozen that he's rubbing elbows, de Blasio's rubbing elbows with? It's sort of the price of think, doing business these days in politics. I don't think Jonah was a dime a dozen. I think he had a pretty unique level of access early in de Blasio's administration. I think the evidence showed that, you know, that de Blasio really was communicating with him on a, um, to a surprising extent. I think that the de Blasio administration, early, the early years of the de Blasio administration was characterized by a degree of sloppiness that it does not have anymore. I think he learned some lessons through this whole um, ordeal. De Blasio benefited from the fact that he was never charged. So the nature of the federal investigation wasn't really clear as it was going on. I mean, it, it was clear. It was a probe into his campaign fundraising practices. Um, but, you know, exactly what was going on, what was the theory, what, you know, what exactly was under investigation, um, which episodes were under investigation. I mean, we knew the campaign for One New York was a part of it. Um, I did a story, I believe, in the last year, year and a half that reported that this, one of the theories, was that de Blasio was selling access in exchange for donations and that part of the scheme was the suspected scheme that was under investigation was that there would be people with business before the city, for example, the owner of the air rights to Grand Central Terminal. Mm-hmm. And that person would need to, um, would seek FaceTime b- before the mayor, with the mayor. De Blasio's fundraising team would say, okay, yeah, you want some FaceTime with the mayor? Give a donation. So then the, the Grand Central air rights owner would make a donation, in exchange would get FaceTime with the mayor. But the key part is this meeting would be set up with the mayor going in knowing this person isn't going to get what they want. That way, the quid pro quo is never completed. There's never like the this for that. Mm-hmm. Because the mayor's the, the mayor's doesn't give the, the donor what they want. <laughs> if the mayor had given the donor what they want, it's possible he would have been charged. Interesting. But, you know, it was very like, uh, it's hard to explain. It's even hard, you know, like even me. Well, I mean, it's, I it's, story, it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, it's kind of almost a hustle. It's co- it's sort of exactly. like, yeah, exactly. yeah, like give me the campaign dollars and then these guys are that savvy and calculated that then if they know, if they don't follow through on what the, the quote unquote quid pro quo was, then there actually is no there is no honest services if you wanted to to go further which is kind of interesting to think about right yeah cuz it's yeah. So, i'm sure I, and i won't make this analysis but i'm sure that's a couple of the reasons why probably everyone hates the blasio at mm-hmm. the end of the day 
and how hard, you know, I've always found in doing law enforcement stories, how hard has it been for you to report on stuff inside the NYPD? Has it been hard? It's a very tough nut to crack. Yeah. I liken uh, one police plaza to like a knitting, like a gigantic knitting circle. There's so much gossip coming out of there. Um, and it's also very hierarchical. Um, people are very siloed in certain ways. It's a lot of, you know, it's, it's tough to separate fact from fiction. Um, it seems like there's always rumors that somebody's going to retire, somebody's going to quit. You know, um, Monahan, you know, Chief Monahan recently has retired, but there were rumors that he was going to retire for like the six months prior. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and that those type of things play out all the time. Um, you know, me as a court reporter, I don't. I have colleagues who are very well sourced in the department, yeah. So I can rely on them. I don't have as many police sources, but yeah, it's incredibly complicated. And you know, their their internal affairs in this case was collaborating with the FBI, and the FBI is super secretive. Yeah. And the Southern District it, of New York is super secretive. So it's, well, that was it's my, not easy. Yeah. yeah, and that was my next question. Is there, as a journalist, a sort of tightrope that you have to walk, walk um, as it relates to covering just the, the prestige of the Southern District? And, and, and like, that, that's the, it's the Sovereign District, the Mother Court. Um, were you, as a young journalist, when you just started to cover the Southern District, were you sort of prepared for it? Or did you learn a lot of early hard lessons? I learned, I did not know going into the job about the Southern District's reputation. Um, mm-hmm. I sort I see them as like the New York Yankees, the federal prosecutors. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a Yankees fan at all. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I really didn't try to 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 seem to be in awe of their reputation or anything like that. That's sort of like journalism 101. You know, I mean, you can't you yeah. can't let that stuff get to you. That's not to say that they don't have extremely smart prosecutors. They, I mean, they legitimately do have some of the best legal minds, you know. I mean, they, you know, Ivy Leaguers, like, just through and through. It's just a constant parade of extremely yeah. smart um, people coming through that office, extremely successful. They go on to, you know, white shoe uh, law firms or um, climb the ladder further in government service. I mean, they are very impressive people, and, uh, you know, I mean, I tend to think that they are sincere public servants for the most part, but I do try to call them out on their mistakes when they make them, and it does happen. And, you know, when they lost this case, it was a really big deal. They don't lose many cases. Um, when When the jury rejected the theory of their case, like, or a theory of their case, it's a big deal. You know, it's an embarrassing defeat for them, and it has to be, you know, I have to write about it like that. You know, I, it's one of the funny things. I was thinking about this today, and I was thinking about how the jury, I think that they, 
acquitted Jimmy Grant because they thought he didn't accept any anything of any significance. And they also, I believe, saw that there were lots of other cops who appeared to be doing things very similar to what Jimmy Grant was on trial for doing. Um, and the funny thing is the jury is instructed specifically not to consider <laughs> consider other people mentioned in the case yeah. and whether they should be charged. But in reality, like, juries do think about that, you know? And maybe maybe prosecutors just pushed it too far on this one uh, by putting Jimmy Grant on trial while introducing all these other cops who never were even called to the stand. Sure. You know, that's just and, sort of what I was thinking about recently. Yeah, no, I, I think your your assessment of that is pretty correct. And, you know, as you know, I mean, the conviction rates um, in the Southern District are just, the, the odds are just almost unbeatable. Was yeah. it a surprise to you in when Jimmy was got a full acquittal? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. It was a long trial. It was a long trial. It was a messy trial. Um, there was just really long cross-examinations by uh, Susan Necklace, Jeremy Reichberg's attorney. Mm-hmm. And it just really felt like it stretched the whole thing out. And so it was not um, – I didn't really know where the, where the jury was going to go. But I, mean, I remember thinking Jimmy Grant had a chance. Because it felt like it felt like the focus was on Jeremy. To you know, the, the the focus was really on Jeremy throughout a lot of the trial. Um, that's not to say they didn't have wiretaps on Jimmy, because like I said before, they had a lot of wiretaps on Jimmy Grant, um, and they had some you know fairly incriminating statements by him about like the elves, <laughs> the Christmas elves, the Santa's elves sure. coming around, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, giving gifts. And then there was you know I remember Jimmy saying. Jeremy was like a tattoo on him. Um, but, you know, that line is like kind of open for interpretation. Like, what does that mean? Like, um, yeah. But uh, nevertheless, it was surprising. I mean, the, you know, the odds are really stacked against you if you get charged in federal court. The odds are stacked against you if you get charged anywhere, in any context, but uh, in any court. But, but in federal court, in the Southern District, it's even tougher. And uh, he pulled he pulled it off. I mean, thanks to some pretty um, dramatic and very memorable lawyering by uh, John Maringolo. I got to say, it was really, um, really something to see. Something I won't yeah. forget. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I was there for most of the trial, and it it was it 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 was an interesting dynamic, and in, and you know how sort of proper, I think, and sterile federal courtrooms are for the most part. And and John's approach, um, I think, you know, really resonated with the jury um, and, and probably was a big reason. Um, what was your, I know I asked you your overall assessment of Jonah. What's your overall assessment of Jeremy? Um, you know, calculating or kind of, you know, uh, I don't know what the best words to describe him are, but but what was your overall assessment of him? 
it's not uncommon in these cases where you feel like the the worst or I should say the most culpable person is the cooperating witness. Um yeah. That was definitely the case with Jonah. But I mean Jeremy was right there with him. I mean, you know, Jonah said Jeremy was the ideas guy and and Jonah was the money man. I mean, the jury definitely found Jeremy, you know, thought that Jeremy was trying to bribe police officers. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was showering cops with gifts. Jeremy was. And he yeah. was taking advantage of his relationship with police officers. He was trying to, you know, and he monetized it. He monetized it because there were instances of people being arrested in Jeremy's, you know, in the, in the the Orthodox community, who would then come to Jeremy, and then Jeremy went to Jimmy Grant. I think that it happened, there was evidence of like that happening maybe once or twice, where you know some calls were made and a guy ended up not staying in jail overnight, whereas perhaps he would have before. Um, that's my recollection. Mm-hmm. And you know. Beyond that, I don't know. You know, I mean, I can't, I can't like make an assessment on the, the criminality of that. You know, I, I don't want to. It's not fresh enough in my memory. Sure. Uh, and you know, I can't. I don't want to sort of make some sort of value judgment on how bad that is. You know, I mean, covering courts, like you see people calling in favors and and you know, seeing like. You see sort of the, uh, in, you know, influence, people's varying degrees of influence is, is always evident in criminal justice system, you know. I guess, I guess my, my thought on Jeremy is he was convicted of bribery, you know. Yeah. He, yeah. he was found guilty and he was on a lot of wiretaps too. And he was in a lot of photos too. And the jury found that he, he was trying to bribe cops, but the jury found that Jimmy Grant didn't accept them. You know, as a, I think everyone via newspapers, movies, television, right? We always look at police corruption scandals and and the, the, they're ongoing throughout our country. In retrospect or in perspective, when you when you look step stepped away from this now, was should this have been a full case as it relates to the NYPD, or or should it have been? something that was disciplined internally or maybe this needed to happen to then make some changes. What's your overall thoughts on, was this really a federal case at the end of the day? Well, it was because they brought it, you know, and yeah. you can, you can see the, I remember that that document, there was one document in particular that included a lot about Phil Banks and the Water's Edge restaurant and uh and and what was the the the, the club up in the the nightclub on the on the Hudson River um uh, Hudson River Cafe I think something like that yeah I, I, I know what, what you're talking but about like and there was like cuz there was they were investigating a scheme about out of state liquor yeah you know, yeah, maybe that Peralta. was part of it. Hamlet Peralta, yeah. Yeah, with Hamlet Peralta. And so, like, you can see where it began, like, yeah. how they thought they were on the trail of, like, a wild 
there was a period where it looked like they thought they were on the trail of a wild corruption scheme at like the highest levels of the department. My first thought when you say, is this something that should have been handled internally is like, you know, the, the city has just gone through like a year long, like ordeal over the NYPD disciplinary system and how broken it is yeah. and how they really, like it takes forever to process a disciplinary proceeding. And then often like nine times out of 10, nobody gets punished. So I don't think that like, that, oh, it should have been handled internally is very credible just because of how broken that system is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the jury, the jury rejected the idea that, that, that Jimmy Grant should have been federally charged, you know? Yeah. The flip side is there was a lot of salacious stuff going on. Like, you know, I mean, Jimmy Grant was acquitted, but like, there's a lot of stuff in that came out in trial that is, does not look good for him. You know, there's no way around that. Sure. Uh, sure. That flight, the flight to Vegas is like exhibit A. You know, what's a cop doing? On, what's a high ranking cop doing on that flight? There's no good answer to that. So whether that's a federal crime, though, you know, whether it all rises to the federal crime, the jury didn't think so. They heard they listened to the prostitute on that flight testify about it. It was a weird, her testimony was weird, and she seemed kind of out of it. So I don't think she really had much of an impact. And that, 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 I only have a few more questions. In this, let's call it, mix of things, you also had the gun licensing division stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And there was some carryover into the Reichberg and Jimmy Grant. Did you cover any of the gun licensing stuff, and and what was your overall takeaway of of that story? I think that I mean I don't I think that you know you can't really ask the same question about the gun license stuff, right? Should this have been a federal case? I mean, the sure. gun license stuff is serious business, um, yeah. At least from my perspective, and from you can see from a prosecutor perspective, from a law enforcement perspective. The city, you know, has some of the most restrictive gun laws in the country. Um, we take it really seriously. And there's this access peddling thing going on. There's corruption in the, in the, in the process of determining who gets a gun license and who gets it when. From a uh, law enforcement perspective, you're going to want a clean house if something like that is happening. I remember very distinctly that there was a lot of people saying that there were fall guys in that case and that there were people who did not, who, who dodged prosecution or dodged any discipline at all or really any even stain on their reputation, though they deserved it. You know, there are a lot of sources telling us that. A lot of people still say that. Um, yeah. There was yeah, one, I mean, that... you know, Lieutenant Paul Dean said it on the record. Sure. He, he put in, you know, letters calling out people he thought, People, his superiors, who he thought um, orchestrated the whole thing and benefited from it. Yeah, ironically um, enough, um, what what I always found about that story was that Endall, who who kind of ran the show yeah. and was put there by Bratton, he kind of 
just drifted off into the sunset. Um, ironically there's enough, it, there's a lot of bitterness about him. There's a lot of bitterness uh, from sources about about him. I don't have any insight into why he wasn't charged, though. I mean, I, you know, but a lot of people were angry. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I mean, that's a, you know, that's a wild case. That 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 whole aspect of the investigation is crazy. Um, and do you think that story was fully reported and told, or, or in your mind, there's probably more to unpack there if someone really started to 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 poke around corners? Yeah, you could. Yes, I think you could probably. There's probably more there. There were a lot of big names who. Dean alleged got special treatment. If I remember right, like he said, Donald Trump, Michael mm-hmm. Cohen, um, mm-hmm. the cast of a police drama uh, yeah. starring Burt Reynolds. I think no, was it Burt? No, oh, it, was it was Tom, uh, Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck. Blue Tom Selleck. Yeah. yeah, Tom Selleck. Blue Bloods. Yes. Um, I always confuse the two because of the mustache. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot there, uh, for further investigation. It was a long time ago now, though. It was a long time ago. And the NYPD says it's totally overhauled its process. I don't know, you know, I haven't, that's not something I would be in a position to fact check, you know, dig into the, the, uh, gun licensing process now. But um, it definitely resulted in some reforms or at least some turnover in the unit. Significant turnover, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I think that was a worthy yeah. prosecution. Yeah, definitely, 100%. I, I agree. I have one last question for you, and this is more of just an overall question of where we're at sort of in our criminal justice system and and as a country and, you know, you being a court reporter and, and a court reporter in, in New York City. Um, is, the, is the federal criminal justice system as it stands today, would you, would you, would you agree, disagree that there, that it's a level playing field in a sense, or are the, are the chips just immensely stacked against you, guilty or innocent? I think there's a growing recognition throughout society that, um, the criminal justice system is wildly unfair, you know? And I mean, Jimmy Grant was a, um, part of the criminal justice system as a high-ranking cop. And I think he came away from this experience realizing how unfair it is. Um, you know, and he was a, he was a very, he is a very smart guy with a lot of experience and understanding of the criminal justice system. Just imagine if you're like, you know, some poor kid caught in a get caught up in a gang bust. Yeah. Who like really didn't, you know, like a low level drug dealer who gets caught up in some federal case. Yeah. You know, and all of a sudden you're looking at like 10 or 20 years and you don't get bail and you end up going into these, you know, 
MCC or MDC, and those places are just pits. The word just hell on earth. And um, you know, people come out really damaged. Uh, especially if they have to, if they have to stay in jail awaiting trial. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the whole experience can just be um, devastating. And I imagine that it really shook Jimmy Grant in a lot of ways. I can only imagine what his perspective is as a cop on trial, you know, and to have believed in the system to be a, a, a part, such a, a key part of the system, and then to have it turn on you like that. Yeah. Um, it must have been very, uh, I mean, obviously it was a life-changing experience for him. I mean, there's no question about that. He lost his job. Yeah. Um, and his reputation. Um, that's one of the things I that was, makes him really interesting. You know, I mean, it's really interesting. You, you know, usually a, corru- a corrupt cop, a crooked cop is going to get convicted in a lot of situations, you know, um, an alleged, an accused crooked cop is probably going to get convicted by a New York City jury, you would think. Maybe. I don't know. If, I don't have any stats to back that up. That's just sort of like common sense to me. He's really in a unique situation as a uh, an accused corrupt cop who is acquitted, but who can now no longer be a cop. Like, you know, he has you know- a really interesting perspective. Yes, it's interesting, and I'll leave you with this. You know, I had, before I met Jimmy um, and sat in on his trial, I had sat in on a trial on a a hip-hop guy named James Rosemond, or Jimmy Henchman. Mm -hmm. And I had watched, he he was charged under the CCE charge, and so I went and sat in on his whole trial, and I, I was, I had some of the discovery. I had a lot of the evidence that was given to me prior to, to sort of watching the trial. I saw some things go on that were very interesting to me and in, in what the U.S. attorneys did and how they positioned the criminal organization and, and the, the mechanics of it. And I said, oh, oh that's interesting. And then I went and sat in on Jimmy's trial, and I kind of saw the exact same playbook. Mm-hmm. And that's when I kind of started to scratch my head and just a little bit and go, huh, this is kind of fascinating. And, I, and for me, I think what I, what I walked away with, and, and I don't think this is any secret, is even, even the idea of, of the discovery and, and the client's ability to go through the discovery and to understand mm-hmm. the government's case and the idea that, you know, and Jimmy had the luxury of being out of jail to do that. Uh, James Rosemond did not. Uh, if you're, if you had a lawyer that was the arguably the best lawyer on the planet, there's no way you can go through all that discovery. There's yeah. no way you can find Brady material. And I think that, system alone stacks the deck from the beginning and and I didn't even wasn't really even aware of certain mechanics of that and saw that and saw how that's used too you know oh we just yeah. found this or oh I'm gonna I'm gonna hand this to you the night before trial right um and and those things are seemingly if they're caught doing it it's a slap on the wrist and 
a lot of times it's not even that. So those things didn't sit right with me on an overall level, but I'm sure you've seen it happen a million times. And I guess like Omar said in The Wire, the game is the game. That was one of the big takeaways for me in having saw those two trials and and wonder, okay, are they doing this because they believe that this guy is a criminal, you know, mastermind um, drug kingpin, but I saw it with a, the white Irish cop, too. And, and so yeah. uh, that was an interesting, like, year of my life seeing this stuff up, up front and close and personal, you know? Yeah, people don't appreciate the sheer volume of evidence yeah. that the feds accumulate in these type of cases. Yeah. And it's really, it's really crazy. And um, there's just no way to sift through it all if you're uh, your average defendant without the resources to hire multiple really mm-hmm. skilled lawyers. And so you end up in this sort of, sort of situation like, I mean, it was a bare bones operation with Jimmy Grant and John Marengolo and his uh, co-counsel. Yeah. And, you know, they, it was a real David versus Goliath type of thing going on there. And, and Marengolo really leaned into that and embraced that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why they succeeded is Marengolo really created a sort of a sympathetic kind of vibe. He sort of like acknowledged that the deck was stacked against him, but that he was going to go down fighting. And I think the jury kind of responded to that. Steve, I I really appreciate the time, man. Thank you so much. I've respected your work for a very long time. So thank you so much. No, you're welcome. Thanks uh, Thanks for asking me to do this.